How many of you played soccer as a kid, say five-year-olds? Oh, not so many. Not so many, but a few who played as a five-year-old many, many, many years ago. Um, as an under, under six, um, I would go to training on a Tuesday afternoon, and uh, from, in my case, it was through the back of my uh, fence into the park, and uh, we'd meet my other teammates and the coach, who was one of their dads, and uh, we would learn to play soccer. Most of the kids on my team were Italian or Macedonian, and they knew their soccer, and they were very passionate about soccer. Well, the parents were, let's put it that way. And I might have inherited some of that. Every Tuesday afternoon, we'd go to the park, and uh, we would train. We would learn how to spread out. We would learn where we were supposed to stand in formation. We would practice running up and down the field in that formation. We would practice passing the ball to each other, stopping and passing, stopping and passing. We'd do it for an hour. We'd take practice shots at goal for another hour. We would practice defending the goal. We would learn how to mark players. And generally, we'd learn how to play the game of soccer. So what do you think happened on Saturday morning when the referee blew the whistle for the start of the game? Anyone? What do you think happened? <laughs> you see, our goal suddenly became the ball. I must kick the ball. You have to kick the ball in order to score a goal, don't you? So I must kick the ball. And everybody had the same plan. Everybody did the same thing. And very few goals were ever scored. Entire generations of ants would be born, have babies and die in those goals before a ball rolled into the back of the net. And I was the goalkeeper, so I spent a few, few, few games napping. Um, and the thing is, when you get older, you learn that you can't lose sight of the big goal at the end of the field. That that big goal has to change the way you play the game. It has to change the way you think about how, the, how you play the game. And every action you have has to be towards that goal, rather than just kicking the ball. Last week, I uh, talked about unity. Um, and we talked about the fact that in a team, a family, or a core, or a church, or a business, or anything, it's, it's much easier to develop unity if you have a clearly defined goal, because everyone knows where we're going. In the Salvation Army, we've had a number of goal statements, mission statements, vision statements. Um, when I was growing up, the vision statement coined for us by John Gowans, was to save souls. Does anyone know the rest of it? Come on. Grow saints and serve... Oh, thanks, Tony. Give the answers away. <laughs> Do you know what? So then, um, I don't know, some years before Rebecca and I arrived here at Wollongong, these statements, these three phrases, were taken and made Illawarra-ified, and they became introducing people to Jesus equipping people for life and serving in the Illawarra. They became our mission statements and it is the mission statement for us today. This is still our goal. I think 
uh, you might be aware that the Salvation Army in Australia has gone through a bit of a shift and is now no longer two territories, but one. And as part of that process, we developed a new mission statement. Does anyone remember what that is? Wherever there is a vision statement, sorry. Wherever there is hardship or injustice, Salvos will live, love and fight alongside others to transform Australia one life at a time with the love of Jesus. Didn't I not put that up for everybody? Oh, well, so you should know it anyway. I think, though, if we go back to the threefold statement, save, grow and serve, I think that clearly defines three aspects and three goals with which we approach life and ministry in the Salvation Army. And I think two of them are fairly well understood. I, I believe so, particularly here in the Illawarra. If we're going to talk about serving suffering humanity or, or serving in the Illawarra, I think this goal is really well understood. We know what we are doing. We work in homelessness services and domestic violence services. We have a welfare centre here in this building that seeks to help people with stuck financial problems. We will serve thousands of people at Christmas time with toys and hampers. We have a whole program upstairs devoted to serving families in crisis with counselling and peer support programs, drug and alcohol treatment programs. Across the rest of Australia, I think we kick this goal fairly well as well. We have also, including all of those things, we have aged care services, we have bushfire and emergency relief, which is key at this moment. We also have chaplains in pubs, prisons, hospitals, courts and the outback. We have all sorts of things that we do as a Salvation Army to serve suffering humanity, to alleviate the struggle. I think we kick that goal fairly well and, I, and the Salvation Army is well known for it. I also think we do fairly well in understanding and kicking the goal that is growing saints or equipping people for life particularly here at Wollongong. We talk about holiness in the Salvation Army quite a lot. We are part of what is known as the holiness movement, a part of the family of Methodist traditions, in which we discuss quite a lot about how to grow better, how to develop spiritually, how to become more and more the people that God has called us to be. And so, we preach sermons around those things. We talk about human nature, we talk about what it is to relate better to ourselves, to relate better to each other and to relate better to God. We, we build congregations, we hold Bible studies, we gather together in life groups and we encourage personal devotions all towards equipping people for life. And every time we try to bring a biblical focus to a particular human problem or life experience, we highlight the wisdom of Scripture and we address that problem or experience, we try and remove barriers in people's lives and encourage them in their growth and spiritual development. We kick that goal, I believe. So we serve people in the Olwara, we do that well. We equip people for life, we do that fairly well. I think they're fairly well understood, even if we don't do them as well as we might even. Where I don't think we are clear, and you might correct me on this, but not now, after, is in the saving of souls and introducing people to Jesus. How exactly are we supposed to do that? How do we introduce people to Jesus? 
you sit down and you have coffee with them and you pull up a third chair and say, look, here's Jesus. Is that an introduction? Jesus? Frank, Frank, Jesus, I don't know. You see how it's not quite as easy. It's a lot more abstract. We are the salvation army. But how do you save someone? What are we really trying to do? So today, I thought we'd take this time to, well, before we get out there and start our huge Christmas effort, our Christmas community engagement, before we start meeting people at the kettles on the street or playing music for people on the roads, before we serve people at the pub crawl with water, before we start helping people with their Christmas hampers and Christmas toys, before we start inviting people to our Sunday meetings and before we sing with people in nursing homes and hospitals, and before we join with thousands and thousands of people from across our city to sing carols, before we do any of all that, I want us to be clear on why we do it. Why we, the Salvation Army. So, let's talk first of what we are saving from. The problem with humanity. The Bible contains lots of information about what is a sin, what is right and what is wrong. And it talks about the basic temptations and behaviours of a human being. In fact, church history boils it down to the seven deadly sins, right? It sounds a bit like a a, 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 a clickbait title. Seven deadly sins, the fourth will shock you. You know what I mean? You get those on the internet, right? Except it's been around for a couple of thousand years. The seven deadly sins are what? Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy and pride. They are all found considered to be foundational, motivating, driving factors within a human being that causes them to behave in ways that are self-destructive or destructive to others. Research shows us, however, and in fact so does Scripture, which I'll argue in a minute, research shows us that if we dig further into each of these, that if we deconstruct the psychological profile of someone committing either the, any of these sins or these temptations, we get to a single motivating factor, a single emotional state. One researcher calls it the master emotion of human existence. It is what was described in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This master emotional state we call shame. Shame, research shows us, is the foundational state from which all other negative emotions are derived. My uh, favourite researcher in this space, uh, some of you will know that I speak of her quite often, is Dr Brené Brown. Uh, If you weren't aware, a month or so ago she released a one-hour special on Netflix and if you haven't seen it, get Netflix, get that special look up Brené Brown and watch it. It's powerful. So after 10 years of intensive research with men and women and couples, Brené Brown landed on this definition of shame. So we understand what we are talking about as the key problem for humanity. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. 
Something we've experienced, something we've done, or something we failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. That is the feeling of shame, and that lies at the heart of all human negative emotion. Do you hear in this definition how shame is about feeling condemned? Something we've done, something we've experienced, or something we failed to do in the past now condemns us to a life of disconnection and unworthiness. That sense of condemnation was well understood by our biblical authors, and we'll come to that in a second. That sense of disconnection and unworthiness is an incredibly painful one. Incredibly painful. A couple of researchers named Miller and Stiver describe it as like, like this. The most terrifying and destructive feeling that a person can experience is psychological isolation. This is not the same as being alone. It is feeling that one is locked out of the possibility of human connection and of being powerless to change the situation. In the extreme, psychological isolation can lead to a sense of hopelessness and desperation. People will do almost anything to escape this combination of condemned isolation and powerlessness. It is that state, it is that feeling, it is that which drives all human negativity, that drives all sin, that drives all temptation at the very heart of the human being. That is the problem that we, the Salvation Army, if you were to nail it down to one single thing, that's the problem. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I pray that you haven't, at least to an ex to extreme level. But there is a, a very small part of that that lives at the heart of all of us. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm seeing a few nods. All right, so we know that that's what it is to be human. So the solution, the solution that we, we sung earlier, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. We, we kind of know those verses. Some of you will have memorized those verses or heard those verses almost everywhere. But here's the next verse. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned, stays condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of the one and only Son. Jesus died so that people wouldn't perish. Jesus died so that people would no longer feel condemned, because feeling condemned leads to perishing. Jesus died so that people would no longer feel shame. Shame is the foundational feeling of condemnation. Jesus died, how's this? Jesus died to eradicate any reason someone might have to think that they are unworthy of connection. How's this for a phrase? If you've got a pen, write this down. Jesus died, not just because people are worth it, but because He wanted people to know they are worth it. 
Have you thought about that before? Salvation actually comes to a person when they realize that God thinks they're worth it. Salvation actually happens when someone starts to believe that God of the universe, however they understand God, that's a secondary thing, they can learn all about God later, but however they understand God of the universe, when they start to understand that they love Him, they love them, God loves them. Salvation happens when people believe that despite anything they've done, anything that they've experienced or anything that they have failed to do, God of the universe still says, you're worthy of connection. It just takes believing that. That's what Paul means and he says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, he says this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So, how does this affect the playing of carols on the street in Quarter Heights, for instance, next week? week after, whenever we put it on. How does this affect our collecting at Christmas kettles? How does this affect the way we distribute welfare? How does this affect all of our activity? Well, here's the challenge for this morning. Particularly over Christmas time, in the, in the busyness and, and the amount of times we get to talk and interact with people who, who may not know this truth... In all of our conversations, in all of our actions, we want to make it our goal as Christians to make someone feel that they are worthy. They are valuable. They are not a write-off. They are not the sum of their experiences. They are not condemned to a life of emptiness and isolation. They are of infinite value to you and to God. They are, worth, they are worthy of our time. They are worthy of our attention, they are worthy of our food, they are worthy of our toys, they are worthy of our effort and our energy, they are worthy of our conversation, they are worthy. Because that's how we communicate God's love. That's how we communicate with the love of Jesus in everything we do, wherever there is hardship or injustice, with the love, in everything we help them realize that to us and to God, they are worthy. They are not condemned and they don't have to live like it. That is how we help them towards salvation. One of the things I like to do is correct people. I don't know if that's a passion of anyone else's. I know a few of you it might be. But occasionally I come across a person in the foyer and, and we'll just be having a conversation. I, I, there's volunteers that can help people in a foyer, I just chat. And um, occasionally they'll, they'll say something like, I, I don't know why this person, talk about their, um, their kids or whatever, and they'll say, my kids aren't talking to me, and I don't, I, that's fair enough, I guess. There's no reason why they should talk to me. You know, I stop and I correct them. And I encourage you to, no, you are worthy. You're worthy of their time and attention. You're worthy of the attention of God. That's how we help someone towards salvation. 
that's God speaking through us. And that is our challenge. We don't just want to help people. I mean, you want to help people, right? We don't just want to help people. We want people to believe they are worthy of help. That's the Christmas gift we want to give this season. Can we do that? Can we correct people, encourage people, love people? All right, so we're going to finish up. And my question is this. What about you? What about you? Are you saved? Do you believe deep down that you are worthy? See, I believe that God of the universe made himself into a tiny, little, helpless baby born to an unwed mother in a shed out the back of nowhere in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. I believe that this baby grew up into the world's greatest teacher and miracle worker and prophet and teacher and priest. I believe that this baby demonstrated the love of God by dying on the cross for each and every person. I believe that this baby demonstrated the love of God by dying on the cross for you. Because nothing you've experienced, nothing you've done, nothing you've failed to do makes you unworthy of the love, attention, and sacrifice of God. My question to you is this. Do you believe me? Really? Do you? Because it's the truth. We're going to sing a song in response. Calvary. A great Christmas song. The Savior alone carried the cross for all of my debts, for all of it. He paid the cost. And the line I like in this song is particularly this line that says, my sin and shame don't count anymore because I'm worthy. I mean, you have to add that bit. They didn't write that in the song, but you know. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Do you want to stand with me and respond in this way? Romans 8, chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in. I mean, it's a weird thing to be in Christ Jesus, isn't it? But those who accept and understand and believe the truth of who He is, what He said and why He did it, there is no condemnation. That's the gospel. That's the truth. Do you believe it?